morning, church. Happy New Year. Say, let's go to church today. Use their heat. I'm tired of watching my meter spin. Let's go use their heat for a moment. How's that? Wow. Turn in your Bible to the book of Romans. Each year I have the privilege of standing in this pulpit. And I do this, I have the privilege of standing here numerous times during the year, be it Wednesday night, Sunday mornings. And I wear different hats at different times. Sometimes I'm wearing the hat of a pastor shepherd, trying to discern what it is that the flock needs to be eating in that particular moment. Other times, it's as a teacher, breaking the word open. This is what it means. This is how it applies. But in this particular moment, as I've done over the past few years, I stand here with a slightly different hat on. It's a prophetic hat of taking a look Having inquired of heaven, God, what is it that you're emphasizing in this coming season? Now, we know that, first of all, God is not really impressed with our 12-month calendar. Hello? I mean, he didn't invent it. Man did it so he would know when to show up for work. God, I mean, keep up with birthdays and stuff like that. And so when we, when we come down and say, this is what we sense God is doing and emphasizing in this next year... Please, December 31st of 2018 doesn't mean nearly as much to heaven as it might be to you and to me. It's a general sense of this is what God is emphasizing for, quote, this moment. And we all come to a moment of significant non-significance at the first of the year. As we begin to look at our lives, we look backwards and we look forwards. Someone, we we make resolutions. I heard a definition this week of resolution that I thought was so accurate. Resolution, a to-do list for the first week of the year. (laughs) But as we do look forward, I think it's important that, particularly as it involves something prophetic, that there's a moment of prophetic accountability. Now, I, I tend to hang around certain types of folk. People send me things in my inbox and I get some of the weirdest stuff you can imagine. And if my inbox isn't full, then certain things that come to me via web, the websites and posts and things like that. But what I don't see many times is much accountability. There's a lot of stuff that gets thrown out there and this says, well, this is what God is doing. This is what God is saying. But there's never really after the fact, did God really do that? Did God really say that? Where is, where is the judgment? Where is the accountability? Last year, I spoke a message entitled Course Correction out of Acts, the 27th chapter. And in that, I said that, that there would be certain storms during 2017 that would serve to clarify and to blow us into the course where God would have us be. And I believe that that word came to pass. I've had testimonies that it did. And it's from that place of accountability whereby which credibility can come forth. And so that this morning you can open your ears and hopefully hear what the Spirit is wanting to say to the church. Romans 8th chapter. 
Let's begin reading together in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, help us this morning. God, in these few minutes, I pray that you would do more than just inform us, but that, God, you would make yourself known to us, God, in a powerful and a tangible way. Jesus, help me speak clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage, of course, is a eschatological, an apocryphal passage speaks of something that is yet to come, something powerful, whereby which we're not going to have to worry about losing that 15 we put on last year. We'll have resurrection bodies. <laughs> Hallelujah. Redemption. Speaking of that which is to come and what should be our posture in the wait, which is waiting patiently. Anybody here have a problem with patience? Thank you very much. Yes, still waiting for the 30-second popcorn, not the three-minute popcorn. <laughs> but it's how we can apply this passage without doing violence to its original intent, which is speaking to that thing in the future, a thing in the future. I believe that we have implication and application of this passage for us today. Back in the fall, God began to speak to me and he gave me a singular word, which he often does. And this was the word groaning. And I thought, God, pick another one. <laughs> Blessing, money, <laughs> hair growth, find, <laughs> find something. Let's, can, we, can we choose another word? But it was the word groaning. And there was unique difficulty in putting this message together. Because there is an emphasis in the contemporary prophetic for blessing. There is an emphasis of strengthening, encouragement, and comfort, which we, we know from 1 Corinthians 14, which is the essence of the prophetic. But there seems to be an emphasis in the contemporary prophetic of reducing it to a list of do this, get this blessing. That if you will posture yourself this way, then you can step into 17 blessings for 2017. 18 promises for 2018. How do we get positioned to get blessed? I've heard certain prophetic ministers for the last 15 years preach Jubilee every year. 
Can every year really be the year of Jubilee? I mean, really. And then there's the weather watching aspect of looking for those storms that are inevitably going to come and trying to figure out how much spam we need to buy or whether or not we need to be investing in gold or Bitcoin. That seems to be sort of another emphasis that the prophetic can have. But then there's the true essence of the prophetic. It's one that's seasonally unchanging. One Jewish scholar put it this way. That the prophet, by the very nature of his calling, is a tragic figure. My wife's been saying that for years. He has a fierce loyalty to God. And he has a broken heart over a lost nation. And I would add to that definition the following. And he's fiercely zealous for Christ's church to be the visible bride the earthly representation of the kingdom, all of that which Christ designed for it and purchased on its behalf. Groaning is something that at the first glance sounds inherently negative. Something that we want to avoid at all costs. And yet, many times it's in the groaning that is the prelude. It is the prerequisite to something absolutely wonderful about to come forth. Somewhere along the way, they made men be in the, the maternity room with their wives. You look like the movies in the 50s and the 60s and the men are kind of hanging out in the waiting room. But then some Dr. Lamas decided, oh no. No, 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 no. You at least are going to watch this. <laughs> now, thank goodness that God made women the ones with the womb because the first time that a man had gone through that, that would have been the end of the species. <laughs> but my wife, having given birth to a couple of children, I didn't see her the entire time with a big grin on her face. Little happy dance, and she was groaning. And yet, it was in the momentary groaning whereby which it said in context what was getting ready to come forth. You know, we groan to obtain, we groan to gain. Come on. But the question is are we groaning for glory? And that's the title of my message this morning. And I want to give us five things out of this passage. The first is identification. If we go back a few verses in Romans 8, Paul writes, You did not receive a spirit that makes you again a slave to fear. Now that word there means that we were all slaves to fear, because it says again. But it says we receive the Spirit, not a spirit, not something emotional, but the Spirit, definite article, capital S, Spirit, Numa, God Himself, the Spirit of Sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father, and it's the Spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Holy Spirit has many different 
functions and roles. Jesus said that when he comes, he'll, he will take from what is mine. He will make it known to you. He will guide you into all truth. And yet, could I submit to you that if the only, the only function of the Holy Spirit was to reside in you and I, continually affirming that we are sons and daughters, that would be enough. And yet, and yet, fatherhood. How many of you know that fatherhood has been under tremendous assault for decades? What should be a station and a calling of honor, something that should be reflective of God himself? Why is that? It's very simple. Human fathers have been imperfect, and they will continue to be. Why? Because they are human. But to diminish or even abandon fatherhood leads to a spirit of illegitimacy. And illegitimacy should be something that is nowhere to be found in the life or the heart of a believer. And when we're not affirmed by the Father, guess what? We're going to reach out to anything and anybody that will affirm us. It's why so many of us are bound by comparison and the fear of man. Is why. It's because we're not being continually affirmed by our Heavenly Father. We've got baby daddy drama. We laugh about that, but the reality is it's true. And we're wondering, where is the sonship? Where is the fatherhood? And I believe God is coming to reveal himself as Abba in both a new way for some and renewed for the rest. But it goes on in verse 17. It says, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs and co-heirs. Now, one thing, if you've been around the church in the West for long, We've heard a lot about inheritance. Where are my stuff? Come on. I want it now. But you see, the problem is, it says folks are trying to inherit without the prerequisite revelation and requirements of sonship. We want the stuff, but we don't want the relationship that goes with the stuff. Some time ago, I was having a conversation with God. And it was one of these moments that God was not performing well to my expectations and specifications. You ever had one of those moments? I mean, you had clearly given God the list. You'd given him the time frame, and he was not delivering. I mean, you had the tracking and everything right there. You were waiting for, you know, Big Brown to pull up in the driveway, but he was not showing Sometimes we use scriptures as almost a tracking, you know, we just, never mind. And I was complaining about his fatherhood. Now, I don't recommend this. But he said, if you want me to be a better father, why don't you try being a better son? I've done my part. And I thought, oh my. Yes, sir. And we find that being identified as a son has certain things inherent in it that don't cost us a thing and then others that are costly. Jesus said in John 15, he said, this is to my father's glory that you bear what? Much fruit showing yourself to be my disciples. 
Fruit, fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. But as Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, theologian, pastor, martyr, 20th century, he said the, the tree has no idea how it produces its fruit. All it knows is that fruit comes off. Fruit doesn't really cost us anything. Well, how about the gifts of the Spirit, Pastor Jim? Gifts, they don't cost you anything, remember? Well, how about the admonition and the command to love? But we love because what does it say? He first loved us. Our ability to love is not something that we work up. It is simply an extension and an overflow of that which God has already poured into your heart and into mine. So in many ways, all we've got to do is just let the dam open and just let it move. These don't cost us anything, but there is something that does. And it's one we hear far less about. That verse, it says that we're heirs and then co-heirs, but there's a qualifier. It says, if indeed. If always implies there's something coming. Uh-oh. is the uh-oh part. If indeed, here we go, we share in his sufferings that we may share in his glory. Uh-oh. We only had about two people that even moved when I said that. <laughs> Suffering. It's not a popular conference topic. No one is flocking to Orlando for Suffering 2018. Bring the whole family. I mean, nobody's showing up for that conference. But yes, and, and even as, as we describe sufferings, for those of us in the West, our sufferings are really mere inconveniences. So let's, let's, let's understand some things here. But to the extent that we live our lives, that we create both a theology and a philosophy of life to avoid suffering. Listen to me. Number one, it ain't biblical. Hello? First of all, why would Jesus need to send the comforter if we were never going to need to be comforted? Just think about that for just a second. But then sufferings, there is an identification. But yet we try to avoid it so much. Why is that? Because our emphasis needs to shift from what we can get from God to shift to being like God. And somehow, and until we make this shift, change is never going to fully occur in our lives. Paul wrote this so powerfully in Philippians, the third chapter. He says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You can't understand the power of resurrection until you've been through the indignity of death. Until we share in his sufferings. And somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. We know that Christ suffered apart from the Father. So many times we just think of Christ's suffering as the last week of his life. But trust me, he suffered every day. When he was in this God-man form, separated from the glories and the honor of heaven to suffer the indignity of humanity, Amen. he suffered every day. 
But his suffering was the conformity to the will of the Father. Now, our suffering is very similar. We suffer to conform to his will, but we have yet another one. And that is, we suffer not only to be conformed, we suffer to be transformed. Hear me. Jesus didn't need to be transformed. He was fully God and he was fully man. There was no transformation that was needed on his part. But for you and for me, that's to what we're called. Second point. Verse 22 of Romans 8. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Paul here personifies all of the cosmos, all of creation, waiting to see the sons of God revealed. Then he goes on and he speaks of an internal groaning. It says that we that have the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning we know who the Holy Spirit is. He dwells on the inside of us. But it says we groan inwardly as we wait for the manifestation of that sonship. But let me ask you a question this morning. Are we groaning? Is there any inward groaning that's going on on my behalf, your behalf, on, on the part of the church, capital C, church? Are we struggling? As Paul records in the previous chapter, chapter 7, the same writer here, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do, I shouldn't. And, and, and I'm a mess. I need therapy. I mean, this is the apostle Paul. He's in a, he's in a death struggle with sin. You know, in the church, we've relied on a few things. Historically, we relied on proclamation, teaching, preaching, evangelism, the declaration of this gospel. It's important. We're called to do it. We've relied on demonstration. Paul wrote, I didn't come to you with wise and, just with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And for those of us who've been in the charismatic Pentecostal part of the church for most of our lives... We really have put a lot of emphasis on demonstration. But I want to submit to you that proclamation and demonstration alone haven't gotten the job done. And I think you would agree with that. It hasn't really penetrated the culture and changed it. But I want to give you what I believe is the third one. It's transformation. That the greatest miracle that God does in a man or a woman's life is not what God does to them, it's what God does to take that very essence of who they are and change it into something completely different. Transformation. When people look at you, can they say, well, you're not quite the jerk you were last year? Good. Glad to hear that. But I'm not talking about a little less of this and a little more of that. But transformation is not about modification. It's about mortification. It's about something in us that needs to die in order to experience the resurrection power of Christ. And everything on the inside of us, our entire soul that is wired to life, it says, no! No! 
How does dying self-actualize me? You know what I've learned about God? He is not interested in my self-actualization. He is interested in his personification being seen in my life. Well, what's your destiny? What are you called to? What, what would really set your heart aflame? <laughs> the investment that God is making is not that we become, again, self-actualized. It's that it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's the entire, entire fasting focus for this, this week. Christ in God, in Jesus. I heard a TED talk of late in this. This guy was talking about the caterpillar. Caterpillar, metamorphosis. You know, we're grammar school. Ooh, ooh, this, this, ooh, the bug becomes a butterfly. But he talked about that in the process of that caterpillar fundamentally changing into a butterfly, something happens in that in-between stage where it becomes more of a butterfly smoothie. Is that you don't really see the caterpillar anymore. And you don't really see the butterfly yet. But something wholly other gets formed in that process. This is the waiting patiently that the writer of Romans is speaking to us about. The butterfly, the, the, the caterpillar doesn't just wake up one morning and sprout wings and start to fly and say, Wee, I'm beautiful. It goes through a process where it completely loses all identity with its past. Many of us are so terrified in what it might look like that we hang on to our past even if it's killing us. Because we're terrified of what that in-between state might look like for a moment. And could I tell you that in the course of this lifetime, we're all butterfly smoothies because we won't really get our wings until we see Jesus. We don't receive our full sonship at once. Likewise, we don't receive our full inheritance at once. And I see folk trying to live every part of this. It's like it's everything is like right now. Get mine now, the kingdom now, blessing now. And yet when we do that, we negate the very essence of hope. Hope is not the thing that we have, it's the thing that we are hoping for. And we wonder why in our life we find ourselves so many times emotionally wrung out. It's because we have misapplied the time frame for what the writers of Scripture intended that hope would be. I'm glad this isn't it. Even in its greatest form of health and wealth and blessing and fellowship and friendship, even as good as it can be, I'm glad this ain't it. Amen. And I believe to that end, God is coming to inspect some things. And I believe in that inspection, there's going to be both inspection and confrontation. And in that confrontation, there's going to be a separation. Hear me. 1 John 4 talks about testing the spirits. 
There's a phrase that's being bandied about now that's relatively new. It's called fake news. Now, I'm not trying to make any political commentary. I'm just stating what is now has become vernacular for us. It's, it's, it's something that now is in our culture, fake news. But let me submit to you that fake news has nothing to do with Fox or CNN. Fake news is an old problem. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30 and 31 says, A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies and priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. Jeremiah 29.8, this is what God says. Don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. And many times there is again, there is a theology, a philosophy of blessing. That's fake news. Don't know what else to say. And yes, we've got a very fluid system now whereby which information can move. So this is not about the benefits or the ills of technology. It just means that information has the ability now to move at a rate that has never moved in the history of mankind. And yet, fake news there's a theology of blessing without storms happens to be one of those items that come under fake news. But I believe there's a coming confrontation with that which is not truth in all arenas of society, be it governments, culture, and yes, even in the church. It's coming. That God's getting ready to call out those things that didn't originate from heaven. Isaiah 28, 16, and 17, beautiful messianic passage that we quote. See, I lay, in, I lay in Zion a stone, tested stone, precious cornerstone for sure foundation. It says, the one who trusts in it will never be dismayed. But you see, saints, it's not just the presence of the cornerstone. It's are we paying any, paying any attention to what the cornerstone is supposed to be doing? Oh, Pastor Jim, we've got the presence of God, but are you paying any attention to the presence of God? We've got the building on the cornerstone, then why does your building look all janky? And he goes on in this passage, he says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. And with the inspection and the confrontation, there's coming a divine separation. Matthew 25, I don't have time to unpack it right now, but Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats. And likewise, for you and for me, he's calling the world out of us to separate ourselves. You know, most of us love God. The issue is we love the world more. Oh, I love God, Pastor Jim. I know you do. The only problem is we love what the world provides for us more because it's imminent. Right now, I'm on this horrible quest to get off of carbs. <laughs> and I do love carbs. 
They're everything that one loves. Biscuits, donuts, French fries. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because there's a lot of the world that needs to come out of me. They're called pounds. But you see, the problem is that carbs, the reason we love carbs is that the immediate blast that they give us, they make us smile. It's that release of sugar. Yes. But you see, that's what it's like to be in the world of loving it so much. We get this immediate hit from it. But in the end, it produces death, or at least premature one. Jesus' amazing prayer in John 17, praying for us, they're not of the world even as I am not of the world, to protect us. But you see, in speaks of location, of speaks to identification. Romans chapter 12 says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, this cosmos, this system. But what does it say? It says, be ye, there's that word again, by the renewing of your mind. God's also calling, I believe, the church to moments of intervention and renewed intercession. Joel, the second chapter, verse 17, very interesting passage. It's let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people. Don't make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? A little explanation. The porch and the altar. The altar, of course, being that place where it's reserved for the priests to go in and offer sacrifices a place where the presence of God is. But then the porch, a place where the populace gathers. And there's a a priesthood function that God has called us to straddle the place between the altar and the porch. He wants to give us a ministry, an altar porch ministry, if you wish. We all love the presence of God, Friday night prayer, Wednesday night, whatever it might be, it's great, it's wonderful. But God has called the church into a priestly role. We all understand that, do we not? We're it. We're it. My wife and I used to look at each other when our kids were being kids and saying, who's the adult here? We need an adult because I don't want to be one right now. And we look around and we say, oh, I'm glad Pastor Brett's here. Oh, yes, he's a holy man. Oh, yes. He reads his Bible every day. I mean, I'm glad. But let me look around. There's nobody else coming. You're to Calvary. You're it. And it says it's in that place. It says that part of the priesthood, there's weeping. Saints, we've learned to rejoice. Now we need to learn to weep. We need to learn to weep. Because the things that breaks God's heart don't break our hearts. We read the news disconnected. Well, I'm glad I don't live there. Come on. And God wants to bring an intervention 
an altar porch ministry into the church. He wants to teach us to weep. I don't know about you, but I get broken over my own sin simply because of the consequences that sin brings. I don't weep over what sin does to everybody else. We want to love God. We've got to love what God loves and hate what God hates. You say, but, but, but I didn't think we were supposed to hate. You bet you are. And the flip side of love is hating those things that destroy men and women. Between the porch and the altar, God wants to bring this intercessory ministry back to the church. Leonard Ravenhill said this about prayer. It says, the self-satisfied don't need to pray. The self-sufficient don't want to pray. And the self-righteous cannot pray. And saints, we can pray because we have to. Or we can pray because we get to. And my last point is I believe God is coming to restore the reputation of the church. How many of you know the church has a bit of a reputation problem? Come on. I mean, there's a good chunk. Of, I mean, I'm just speaking now in the realm of the United States, but there's a good chunk of folk that think that what's happening in Washington is because the church did it. Are you with me? How many knows that that kind of helps mute your voice just a bit? We've seen church leaders famously fail. We've heard a gospel that has been completely distorted toward prosperity and blessing. Ravenhill again says we're trying to marry Christianity to prosperity, popularity, and personalities. Oh, and it isn't working. And I believe God is wanting to come and restore the reputation of his bride, his church, to be what God's called it to be. And I believe that we're going to see a revival. But you know, it's going to be a revival that much of the church will miss. Hear me carefully. Because we equate in our mind revival as being an outpouring of blessing rather than a revelation of Christ to the lost. And the two don't necessarily always go together. Just study the history of revival just for a moment. That the issue is not just to see how much the church can get in their 401ks. But the issue is seeing Christ being made known to the nations. And I believe God is going to grant the church another shot at this. I really believe that. I don't believe that we've been written out or negated to see this generation touched. And I don't just mean generation as a young generation. I mean the folk who are alive right now. God's coming to do some reputation restoration. So what have we hopefully heard this morning? God's coming to reveal himself as a father, not just so that we can get the stuff, but so that nagging spirit of illegitimacy, that competition, that fear of man, that inadequacy that just tends to drive us, it dissipates 
in the light of that revelation. An identification as sons and daughters. The transformation. Allowing God to transform us. Not just a little modification. This is not about behavior modification. You can, you can smack a puppy in the nose with a newspaper and, and modify their behavior. But you can't fundamentally change the fact that they howl at the moon and walk on four legs. God wants to move us beyond just being satisfied with a little annual sanctification and move us all the way to transformation. Intervention. Intercession. Standing as priest between the porch and the altar. And God bringing a new visibility to his church. Not just that we can do that which God has called us to do missionally. But to be all that God has purchased that we would be relationally. Pray with me. Lord, let us hear something today. As the Spirit spoke to the church in Revelation, the church is. God, I pray you would open our ears to hear something that you were saying to us. God, for some of us today, this message was amazingly unsatisfying because we didn't get our list. To some in this room, we're even offended by this word. As one preacher said, God will offend the mind to reveal the heart. But for others of us, we're struck. We're struck at our lack of change, our rate of change. We're struck at our prayerlessness. We're struck by our passionless. We're struck by our illegitimacy. something in us begins to well up and begins to groan. It begins to groan. To say, God, let your sons and daughters be revealed. Let me be revealed as the son and the daughter that you've called me to be.